Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Marketing Revisited. My name is Liam Maroney, I am your host, and on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, and we go through things one function at a time to learn what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind to be a better marketer. And today, I talked to Karina Owens. She is the Senior ABM Manager at Gong. She is an Advisory Council member to companies like Terminus and Postal.io. She's a prominent voice on LinkedIn and an all-around expert in account-based marketing. It was a great conversation. We talked everything from strategy to execution, and I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Karina, thank you so much for joining. I am really excited to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And before we get in, I actually wanted to say just it sounds like everything is going phenomenally well. And it sounds like a great time to be at Gong just between awards and between Super Bowl commercials. Like it, it is one of those organizations where you just look at all of the marketing and go, I think it seems like a fun place to work. A hundred percent. I've always felt that way too. So I, I pinch myself quite often that I'm actually here. When when they first came on the market, I was just so ecstatic that somebody was not being boring with their marketing and that perhaps we felt like we're human behind the LinkedIn post. So yeah, it's wow. really great to be here. Very well accomplished on, on Gong's part. Yeah. So today we are going to revisit ABM and I have been so eager to talk to you about this because you are certainly one of the more prominent voices out there. I love all the content that you're posting. And I feel like account-based marketing is at a place now where even the definition of it is a little hairy. It feels like it's been a little bit usurped by some of the platforms out there. It seems to be pushed down a metrics role rather than strategy. So if you were explaining ABM to someone today, what is your elevator pitch? Yeah, you're 100% right. And I feel like we're progressively continuing to confuse the market, unfortunately, with what account-based marketing really should be. So when I chat with folks, I simply say account-based marketing is hyper-focused, targeted marketing, or really even simpler, just really good marketing. It's really the foundation for aligning your company's go-to-market strategy and positioning with your target audience. I think that it often gets confused and is often when people say they do account-based marketing, I think they mostly are doing targeted demand generate, which isn't quite what account-based marketing is supposed to be. There's really no cookie cutter or one size fits all approach to account-based marketing. Although I know the market and the technologies desperately want to pitch it that way, but it's very, very custom. And when done correctly, it's usually done in very small batches of accounts at a time. And I'm glad you say that there is no cookie cutter version, because I think the thing I keep struggling with when I think of ABM is you've got one side of it, which is exactly like you said, they're, they're trying to make it formulaic. It's your accounts go in here, we'll target them with ads here, we'll get clicks over here, and then that's ABM done in a repeatable process, way, which clearly right. is not the way it happens. Right. But then you have the other extreme, which is kind of like what you said, which is just like, well, isn't it just marketing? Isn't it just going back to basics? And it's what we've always been doing anyway. Like, what's your kind of feeling on that narrative? Yeah, it, it, it's more the narrative I would subscribe to for sure. I think that it's it's really about alignment, but I think the alignment is often pitched as the alignment between your customers and your message, which it is. But it's so much about the alignment and coordination internally too. So the different teams, of course, sales, but also product. I feel like that gets missed quite heavily in account-based plans, customer success, of course, but even executive alignment as well, right? It's really getting all the stakeholders internally as well to be 
bought into driving the absolute best experience for your best fit accounts at any given time. And I'd love to start there, actually, because one of the things I've always struggled with with ABM, and particularly when I've come into new organizations, is that sometimes they already have target account lists. And when you start to pressure test them a little bit, I found that when they said, oh, we've got like our top accounts, what they meant was we've got logo envy and these are the biggest whales we think exist in the world that we would love to work with. Uh, but it's obviously so the alignment is a huge part of it. If you're coming into an organization, what what is an ABM account? Who is involved in that decision? And like, how does that start? Yeah, I like the approach of how do you kind of evaluate what's already been in place if you're just entering in an organization and um, not sure if this is going to answer your question quite perfectly, but what I like to do is I like to actually dive into the why behind those accounts and why they were chosen and then go through a process of over communicating the reality of the activity and profile of the account. So I think typically it is kind of that logo MV approach. I think it is the, Hey, this, this AE would love to nab this, you know, this logo, but let's dive into that further. Do we have an account view or point of view for this account? Do we know all the appropriate buyers at the table? Are they aware of our product and who we are and our messaging? Is the messaging that we're sending aligning to that POV that we've developed? So there's a lot of kind of peeking under the covers of it, if you will, to see if they're if we're really challenging our assumptions and really going back and seeing, does it make sense? Is this an account that we need to be giving this level of attention and treatment to at this time? And that's the bit that I think I've always really found challenging, which is that like, how do you, what are the requirements to elevate an account into like being in an account-based marketing strategy versus just a target account that's a lookalike of other types of accounts that have the okay. same tech stack? Like what, what are the things that bubble it up into like deserving that one to few, one to one type approach? Yeah, it definitely signals that the buyer's showing you. So I think a lot of times people over-engineer their ABM programs by doing too much too soon. So really customizing the content really early, making a lot of assumptions. So, so much of where ABM can start is really more of that broad stroke. Here is the our best fit content for what we think makes most sense for these sets of accounts. And then as they start to show you different intense signals, whether that be across the web on third-party review sites or on your account, uh, on your website itself, they should be self-selecting into those more tailored custom programs. But I also think that it's important too to, on the front end, do a heavy bit amount of research to see if what you can find generally across the web or in really, really deep interviews and partnerships with other organizations, if it's worth even attempting to get accounts into these programs in the first place. And I think that that rarely actually gets done. Interesting. So like, let me give you like a hypothetical example. Let's say our company has Ford as a client and I say, well, Volkswagen competes heavily with Ford. They've got similar buying processes. They tend to buy the same things. Is that enough to qualify it? Or are you looking at like timelines of like, can this close in the next two, three quarters? Or like, where does it fit in in that scale? Yeah, um, that's a really good way to look at it. We do look at these programs on a yearly perspective. So at any given time, we have a really good sense based on the research that we've done internally and externally, whether or not an account should be in these programs. But when they filter into those really high touch programs, it's completely dependent on the activity they do. 
So when we do get competitive intelligence and we know that they very recently, let's say, engage with a competitor versus us, they do, our accounts do get filtered out of our programs and our intentions, not completely. You know, I think that that's what you're always on marketing engine is supposed to be there for. But we do have a really good way of looking at what our average deal cycle is, comparing it to our competitors as well, and giving timing and appropriation like you're talking about to when these should start to reappear into these more high-touch programs. There's very specific data signals that we're looking for, particularly review sites are a big, big component. And of course, high-value product pages as an example. At Gong in particular, it, we have to be even more hyper-focused about when people enter into our programs or not, because we're fortunate that we have just this incredible content engine. So for a lot of other companies, seeing that you're spending time on a couple of pages on your site could be very strong intense signal. But for us, it's it's typically not. We do find that a lot of our accounts that we know are active with our competitors are still spending an enormous amount of time on our blogs, our podcasts, what have it. There's very specific key signals that we've been able to hone in on over time to know whether you're experiencing a particular campaign or program is much more likely that you are ready to be in that hand raiser or some type of signal like that. That makes sense. And so I think like on that note, when do you cycle them in and out of being in a program beyond obviously like someone has explicitly said, we don't have an interest right now. We're not like, there's a, like, are there things that will elevate people in and like swap them out? Do you keep, is it that rigid where you've got a set number there's a certain amount of headspace that you can dedicate to them, but suddenly, let's say an account pops up and they've got a spike of intent that you hadn't anticipated. Like, do conversations happen that fluidly or do you start and commit to a number and then reevaluate on a more rigid timeline? There, both scenarios do certainly happen. I think the biggest differentiation here is the coordination of our internal teams. So being aware of intense signals that technology can't surface. So of course, that dark social element here, hey, I just had a person reach out to me on LinkedIn. They gave me some heads up that they're changing jobs, but that this is an opportunity at the account they're moving to. So there's a lot of different context and, and color that we received, you know, offline, if you will. And we do work to pay most attention to signals like that. That really helps us kind of break that formula, if you will, a bit. But we do have largely some guardrails to give us um, some indication that maybe accounts are ready to be back into the awareness stage or consideration or MQA. But I would say largely, as long as you're providing that visibility and have a mechanism internally for those different signals online and offline, that's what's really going to enable you to move a lot faster and quicker than your competition. So I always like to operate from a place of complete transparency and over communication. So I don't rely on the technology, but I do heavily rely on the relationships I've built internally to make sure that we are in a good flow of communication at any given time for accounts. I like that. And actually on that internal alignment part, I know I've definitely struggled with this in like, what is, and obviously it changes from organization to organization, but if you were advising on like, what does this group look like? Like who meets to talk about accounts? How frequently do they meet? Like what, how do you bake that into just regular ongoing sales and marketing? Yeah, that's, and that's truly the, the biggest hindrance that I see when a marketer is looking to launch or scale an ABM program is how are they already set up to receive and digest communication. And a lot of times a program like ABM can really help break down those different silos because it is such a 
ABM programs just take a really long time to show that late level impact like revenue as an example. So getting that communication line is super important. And I would say that to start, it's very important that you have your executive team bought into ABM as a strategy initially. Anytime you have that top down, of course, with any discipline, anytime you have that top down buy-in, it's substantially going to change the success or failure of a program. So it's very important that on the onset, you have clear guidelines and communication on what are we as a team hoping to achieve with an ABM program? What does success look like early on, middle stage, and late stage? But additionally, too, I think have what I like to do at least is, what especially when lurking, working in larger organizations, is have a block of time every month for any of the team members, whether they be AE, BDRs, SDRs, or client success, have a block of time that's basically like ABM office hours for people to drop in and out and ask questions. In the interim of that, I do make sure to communicate in all bi-weekly meetings the different campaigns that are successful or not, what are the learnings that we're finding, how are things progressing. And then, it, of course, just making sure that the data that you are sending offline, so through those different reporting systems that you have, making sure that people really do clearly understand what they're looking at that's going to enable people to just move a lot quicker and a lot faster. So I described various ways of um, communicating and alignment, but it does really take a multitude of touch points internally to ensure that everybody's kind of marching to the same beat. That's that's really good advice, actually. And the the top-down alignment is an interesting one because I, I think it can it feels like it can be really easy to oversell ABM when you bring it in. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, we bought these new technologies. And then there's all the stats of like, the deal sizes are going to be bigger and all of those. Like when you're, if you were giving advice to someone who has a, a normal sort of regular demand gen process and you're implementing an ABM strategy, like what are those timeline expectations? Like what is that? What is Q1, Q2, Q3 going to look like before you start to see the payoff of this and not oversell and have them be waiting for something to happen that isn't going to? Yeah, it's a it's a really great question. It definitely varies by what is your average deals look like? What does that sales cycle look like? But I think for enterprise level companies where it is a little bit more complex and longer, it's really important to just show activity as the main driving key point initially. So out of these accounts that we identified, how many more of them are actually spending more time on our site? or how many more of them are interacting now with our social content. So it's really about showing activity of the account early on initially to show some initial success. And then you will find that later on, it gets easier and easier to show the ROI of ABM because if you're doing it successfully, you're actually attracting a large buying committee. We know now that for tech at least, it's an average of 15 plus of any time or any amount of people you can have in a deal cycle. So mm -hmm. a lot of the success you can show with Velocity is we're able to identify more and more contacts are engaging with more and more campaigns when they are in this hyper-focused ABM program. And we've I've always seen at every company I've been at that it absolutely decreases the time that's spent in each stage. So there's a lot of there's a lot to be had, of course, in the back end of ABM. But initially, it's showing the overall level of engagement, I would say, compared to a control group. So a control group of people that aren't experienced those ABM programs. And more often than not, you'll see that it's just substantially more engagement or time on site as a metric compared to those that are not experiencing those more hyper-touch programs. 
That's an interesting one. And uh, on the engagement part, you mentioned like identifying those buyer groups and having the, the accounts mapped out. When you're doing a lot of that reporting, how much of it is like the known people that you're saying, these are the ones we want to reach. We've now reached them with these content. They're on the site, they're engaging versus I guess the traditional like tech ABM metrics, like, oh, you've got account engagement score has gone up. These anonymous people from the organization have been interacting with the site. Do you even take those into account or are you really at an individual person level within those buyer groups? Yeah, that's a tricky, that's a tricky question. I think the, of course, the people become more and more important later in the buyer's journey, but we do need to be mindful that there's so much to consider at these larger organizations about attracting really the entire account versus starting to be super individualized on the onset. So I would say that it's really important to get a lot of learnings initially, how, what types of groups are interacting at the account on the onset, and then how does that change and what does that kind of look like as you get later down the stage? But it's not that, I know there's a big debate between should we still be looking at MQLs if we're going to be doing account-based marketing? And, and the answer is, I mean, truly, yes, it still matters. People still matter. I don't think account-based marketing is trying to take away the importance of leads. They're still, it's still important to get to the contact level. The more personalized you can get, the better from account to person. So I think there is a little bit of confusion in the market about, you know, MQLs versus MQAs, but they're all important. It's just, again, about being very specific at the account. And then you're getting more and more personalized as you identify who that buying committee is down the funnel. That makes a lot of sense. And actually on the MQL one, I'd love to switch to the sort of organizational structure. This might be a bit of a loaded question and I'm sure it depends on the organization. Is account-based marketing a function of demand gen? Is it a partner to demand gen? Like where, how would you build it into an organization if you were starting from scratch in a, in a relatively typical SaaS company? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it is a part of demand generation. It certainly can live on its own, but there is a lot to be said for a team that is working hand in hand with those tactics and those strategies. I think sometimes when you separate them completely, you're, you're, you're creating a silo that is actually not beneficial to the customer experience. So the more that the two departments can be intertwined and talking with one another, the better. And it's really what I would consider to, I mean, ABM is such a part of sales, you are heavily a part of that process and you're focused on it from a educational perspective. Like you're really trying to focus on enabling your buyers to make the best decision for them. So it's, it's just a different set of tactics and approaches, but I think when they are in the same department, you're going to have a much more cohesive approach to how you're engaging with your buying audience. Yeah. And you, you talked about content earlier, and I think that's obviously one of those partnering functions within the team. When you think about content, like I know there's the sort of one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many approach. Do you, is there a separate content strategy or are you augmenting from existing content or what, how does it interact with content? Yeah, it's a great question. I think to start, I would leverage not I works work smarter, not harder. I would leverage what you know is already working, what's already available, and then start to work to customize that content as it's very specific to the learnings that you're getting from that account. So it's really about 
more than likely, there's not a ton of customization that you're ever going to do. It's really about taking what you hear from these discovery calls and sales meetings and then surfacing very particular content from what they're sharing with you is most important to them. And of course, you can customize that by how it looks, how it's going to sound to the account. So using verbiage that you know matters best to them. So let's say that they were looking to scale their BDR organization, but they actually call them ISRs or SDRs. Little tiny nuances here and there to make sure that you're always speaking their language, but more than likely your content, if you have a really good content library, and that could just be like 10 really great assets, you already have what you need to get ABM started, but then it's how do you surface those key findings or those key pain points in your content at the right time for when you're getting learning that information about the account. I like that approach because it, it's much more sort of subtle and you're just starting to tailor it. I feel like you see so many, so many vendors, but also so many strategies where they're trying to rush to this hyper personalization, put their name on the cover of the ebook and a little photo of them. You're, you're much more on the other side of that. Yeah, it's exactly like the, the way to describe it to people is remember when we all were hyper obsessed with first name token personalization in email marketing, like that's what we consider to be personalization. It's not really personalization. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's that's somewhat to be expected. So I think that to your point, it's, it's subtle, but it's so intentional. So instead of showing you an ad about how to scale your, you know, sales organization, Maybe I really know that your importance next year is actually to scale your recruiting team or your onboarding team. It's very subtle, but intentional. You're listening to exactly what the account is telling you is important to them, but leveraging what you already have. So it's much more beyond the, the token personalization. Do you have an opinion on that sort of swing for the fences one-to-one? -one? Like, I'm going to record a video talking to you as an individual. Like, we want your business specifically. Have you seen it work? Do you shy away from it? Yes, I have seen it work. It's important that you've done the research and due diligence before you make any ask, though. So I like to always encourage our team and myself included to just lead from a place of empathy and education. I think some of the more successful ways, so talking about like going to that one-to-one -one approach immediately, isn't always just doing maybe like a cold email, if you will. Sometimes it's just going where the, you know the audience is living and consuming content. Reddit is a really great forum for people in B2B and tech, but gets so underutilized. So I encourage my team and I do myself, I scan the forums on Reddit that I know my buying audience is actively engaging on. And I comment on their threads with helpful information. So stuff that I'm taking from our eBooks or our podcasts. And I'm building a sense of trust and relationship because I'm just, I'm just kind of offering them help and feedback in a way that's very much less of a, a push, right? So I always encourage people that one-to-one -one certainly can be done like that, but you're, you're competing with everybody else that's doing the same thing. So you're taking a very similar approach, but it's much more impactful by taking it through a different perspective like that. That's very much kind of going into that dark social conversation. Like I it's so far removed from a lot of what the ABM vendors are trying to do, where they can show tracking and attribution all the way through. Yeah. How much of your activities today do you think are more untracked and purely sort of just sending value out into the marketplace? I mean, I would say at least uh, 80%. Oh, really? Yeah. And and I think I'm very lucky too, right? So I'm, I'm in 
I'm in uh, marketing and sales and my key audience that I'm, you know, working for currently is in marketing and sales as well. So where I interact is also where they interact. So it's much easier for me to kind of get deeply embedded into, even though they're different accounts, they're very similar personas. And LinkedIn is one of the main places for that. So I think though, I, I get, I, I hesitate ever to use the word dark social and dark funnel because it's that it too is going to become the ABM problem that we have. Of course. Yeah. But it's 100% about being a lot more, I guess, aware of how your buyers are educating themselves. And COVID, of course, really accelerated everybody really being hyper in the digital space now. I mean, I would say three or four years ago, any audience was mostly hoping to get connected by way of the vendor making that one-to-one introduction or being on an event or a conference where that's a lot more easier and fluid. But now, as we can see, it's it's so our buyers are much more educated to take it upon themselves to do additional research and education. So it's really more about being deeply embedded in these different communities. And so I really focus on talking with folks about the aspect of community versus trying to get deeply entangled into the latest and greatest trend, which of course is, is the dark funnel and dark Of course. Yeah. Actually on the, the community part of it, mm-hmm. I, I know events at one point were certainly a big component of ABM, like these kind of more targeted field type things. Yeah. Do you see that coming back? Is that, or is a community a replacement for it? Yeah, that's, it's a great way to look at it. Certainly how I look at it is where are these subsets of um, buyers living? And of course, there's digital communities. There's certainly regionality communities as well. But yeah, I do think that there's never going to fully be a way to replace events. I think people crave more than ever to, to be in person and, and make those connections. It's of course going to be different than it is in the digital space. But I do think that you're probably going to hear less in marketing, the focus on field events or even ABM. It's going to be this trend of community. And really, I think companies and products are going to be much more mindful about how are they building that community within their product. We know Salesforce did a really fantastic job of that. And I think that it kind of got stalled off a bit, but it's definitely having an upward trend. And I'm constantly thinking of ways of not only how can I build a community within our product, but how can I also facilitate that as a buyer or a user in other communities that I'm a part of as well? Hmm. I like, yeah, I like that. I completely agree. So I want to switch gears onto the measurement part of it because we touched it like MQA popped up a little bit. I mean, is an MQA an authentic measurement or is it sort of a manufactured like vendor type thing? Like, What do you use to measure the effectiveness of ABM? I'm fortunate that we have built something that is pretty custom to our business needs. But I do think that like the MQL, it's a, it's a terminology that was created by vendors as a way to support more sales and, and more adoption. But for us, it is very, there's a lot of guardrails around it because as, as I said before too, there's just so many signals now that it's really, you have to be really smart about when you're communicating to your broader team hey, this account is actually marketing qualified and ready for you to start to advance it to sales qualified. So there's a ton of guardrails that we put around it to the point where sometimes I think that maybe the team would wish that it was a little bit lower, but I think it's important. I think your account needs to be, depending of course on the size, mid-market, commercial or enterprise, but it's important that you do have a breadth of buying scope or personas and different signals. So 
what are they doing outside of you across the web? What is that anecdotal feedback that you're getting from one-to-one conversations with the market? And then, of course, what are they doing with you? So I would really implore that anybody that is getting started and starting to build that MQA model to be never just look at it as a set it and forget it. Always be looking back to tweak and use your learnings because you'll find that even quarter by quarter, depending on the market or any variable changes that can definitely change. And you want to make sure that your model of MQA is constantly learning and iterating. And on that, if you were starting a program, would you be so aggressive as to set a pipeline goal for target accounts? Would you set it a distance out based on what you know? Like what is what is the ramp up? like first quarter impact look like? If I could, I would not. I would focus my initial quarter engagements all around engagement and not a dollar value. I think most marketers are not blessed to have this ability, but we should continuously push leadership to be thinking about marketing's impact beyond just bottom line revenue. The most effective marketing is educating the market rather than, and you you speak about this so well all the time, rather than pushing a forced action that you want them to take. And when you lead from that perspective, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make so much sense to put such a hard revenue ask on it. It's such a, I don't have a perfect answer for this, but I'm so glad the market is at least openly speaking about evolving from a hard dollar revenue impact. What is marketing doing to get there? There's so many different signals that can't directly correlate to that, at least initially. And I would implore any marketer looking to really hone in on their skill set to look out companies, look out for companies that they see are actively educating the market and various channels that don't have this maybe hard metric around what is that ROI? What is that success? Yeah. Yeah. And on the push and pull thing, actually, I, I feel like we're always in this rush to show that we had impact. Whereas like you talk about intense signals and like, I feel like there's two sides to that. There's, there's things you may do that will get them to show up on your site and they're engaging with your stuff. And then there's just intelligence where you're noticing that they are doing stuff of their own volition. And I feel like we skew towards the farmer because it shows that we did that as opposed to, I've got information that's really useful. Right. Like, how do you, what do you, how do you leverage that intent data? Like what is the the strategy behind that? Yes. So it's, it's, it's to, it's to get, it's to inform us to continuously find ways to improve what content we're displaying and how we're displaying it. But it's not meant to serve as a hard and fast rule that we absolutely are certain that this is going to be an in-market account, but it is, it is complicated and complex. And I think it's been really helpful to I've heard a lot of sales leaders look at intent in the way we can share intent as this is the needle in the haystack. This is what we've been looking for. And and that, I think, is what's helpful, right? It's meant to be an additional signal of consideration, but not it's never a for certain signal. That part I've always found to be the challenge that you have to kind of temper that down a little bit, where especially with salespeople, if they've ever leveraged the intent data before, they see it for the first time and it's like it's like a cheat code. And they're right. like, they're, they're looking for it. They're in market. We need to throw everything we can at it. Yeah. How do you kind of pull them back a little bit from thinking it's like a, a real silver bullet? And, I, and to that point, I think that's why when we do have gates, like the MQA stage, it's, it's the threshold to get there is 
is so much more than just a handful of intent signals, whether that be first, second, or third. It's, and I think when you're providing a variety of data to say and not relying too heavily on one signal over another, it does help to temper that expectation a little bit. So I always err on the side of over communicating more information so that there isn't so that nobody gets pigeonholed into thinking that way that this is exact this means exactly that so even when we do look backs like a, a quarter look back on different accounts and how they engage there's similarities but there's also so many different nuances so the more you can continuously educate internally that there is, it's not a silver bullet or one size fits all the better and the the less you'll get stuck in that kind of bias and related to that, and not to villainize AVM vendors in any way at all, but I've certainly, from multiple ones, like they always push, like a lot of tech people do, to embed a module in Salesforce. Sales is going to be trained on this. And there seems like there's the risk of giving them a data that doesn't have context around it and then letting them run with it. How do you... How, how, yeah, I guess what's your stance on that, actually? It's it's incredibly frustrating. And, and the, the intent is often a good one. But I, I always, every almost every organization I've ever been in, I come in and I see that model and how it's presented. And I very quickly say, team, this is taking me more than, you know, a minute or two to digest. If I give this to sales reps, they're just going to walk away. They're not yeah. going to buy in. The data has to be very, very clear. And there, you, you are right that there is uh, almost uh, too much data that you can throw in at any given time. So it's very important that you're always, you're, you're really the, ABM marketers are really the stewards of data. Yeah. So it's really important that you take ownership of what does this data mean and communicate that effectively back. Try not to overcomplicate things because then you're, you're missing that buy-in and trust. I think that's such an important point. I, and I love the way you put it, like you are, you're a steward of that data. And, and I think that's, that's the opposite of the direction that a lot of the vendors are trying to go in where it's all yeah. mass adoption. Look how many people in the organization are looking at this dashboard on a given day. And right. it, it's, it's pushing it into product adoption as opposed to marketing strategy, which is what it is. A hundred percent. Yes. And a lot of the vendors do, I think, approach me and others as all right, well, when can we get sales on the calendar next or how can we get them to use this? And I and I understand the importance of it, but it's it's not going to yield the outcomes I think even they want. It's just going to lead to more confusion. And again, it's steering away from what ABM can be, which is simply really good marketing. There is a there is a point in place to educate the the sales field, but it's it's not typically shoving down that product adoption. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to end it with two questions. Um, the first is, what is something, if you were giving one piece of advice to someone who's either doing ABM, starting ABM, to stop and leave behind and walk away from, it's not relevant or it's not correct? Whew. Let me think on that. That's a really good one. What's a cardinal sin in ABM? I, I I think I think currently it's that advertising is the way in to ABM marketing, that there's a specific channel within advertising that you must be doing in order to be doing ABM. And again, that goes back to, well, who does that really benefit? It really benefits an ABM vendor. So always be thinking about what is what is going to be most impactful that you have control over mostly of initially on the onset with ABM. And a lot of times that's not investing. In, all, in any technology, a lot of times it's using 
just let's just say LinkedIn at your disposal to test with some channels and tactics you already have. So I think I would say do not think that advertising alone or a specific type of advertising channel is the way into ABM. I think that's a really good piece of advice because it's actually quite difficult, especially if you've bought a tool and then what you're effectively saying is I only want to use one part of that tool. And that sounds difficult as someone who's bought and invested in something, but just because they have it as an option that they're going to benefit from doesn't mean you have to use it or should use it. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think I wish that more marketers realize that broadly, but it's certainly a, a pain point in ABM specifically. But on a more positive note, what is something that gets you really excited about what's happening in ABM coming in ABM? What does the future look like? I think community is definitely the future of ABM and probably marketing largely. And I love that really listening to our buyers' needs and really championing them is kind of the result of that. I think for the past two years, I've I've seen the word empathy thrown around in marketing in ways I never dreamed was possible. And so we're really leading now with a sincere effort in championing our buyers. And I think a great way to do that is to provide a space for them to connect with people just like them who are in a similar position, similar constraints, and looking to solve a problem to make their lives easier and their their companies more successful. So I am really excited to see that empathy has kind of led to this trend of collectiveness and community. And I think that more and more companies are going to really invest and be intentional about that. And I think the result is that you're just going to have happier customers um, and more rating fans. So I'm really excited to see how that continues to trend. I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. That is <laughs> that is that is a very sort of utopia direction for marketing to go. And I, I couldn't have put it better myself. That this is wonderful. I am I am a better marketer from just having this conversation. Thank you so much for joining. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here.